welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this October 2013 episode of the podcast, we're going to cover four ways to celebrate Family History Month. We're going to get those old home movies digitized, get our research organized, explore a website that will help us share our family history online, and tell you about something brand new that you're going to be seeing in the magazine. We will start at the Genealogy Insider blog with managing editor Diane Haddad, who will have the latest genealogy news. And then in our top tip segment, contributing editor Rick Kroon will be here to take the mystery out of getting those old home movies digitized with tips from his article called Five Ways to Digitize Home Movies from the October-November 2013 issue of the magazine. And then in our 101 Best Website segment, I'll be chatting with Ravi Rao, the founder of the freetribalpages.com website. In the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Lisa also will be here to give us some organizational tips from her Family Tree University course called Organize Your Genealogy, Get Your Research in Order, and Keep It That Way. And finally, we will check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan, publisher of Family Tree Magazine. She will be here to tell us about a brand new element of the magazine that will make you a better genealogist. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Genealogy Insider blog with Diane Haddad. Well, we're going to kick off this episode with news from the blogosphere. And here to give us the scoop is the Genealogy Insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Um, there's been a lot of genealogy news going on, and I've been reading about it in your Genealogy Insider blog. And one of the biggest events that's happened lately is Ancestry.com acquiring Find a Grave. Tell us about that. That was big news. It was late in September when um, they announced that they had purchased the Find a Grave website. And I think some some people were not surprised because they have licensed that Find a Grave content as part of their web results that you get on Ancestry.com. It'll send you to Find a Grave. Um, but I think a lot of people were very surprised. Yeah, and I think it's it makes us apprehensive because we have concerns about what's going to happen. Here we've all been contributing content to a particular website, and then the whole thing can change. And you linked to a really good frequently asked questions kind of page that they put together on the Find a Grave website. They answered some of those questions, right? Right. Um, Jim Tipton, the founder of Find a Grave, who's been operating this huge website all these years, put this this FAQ on the site to kind of reassure people to let them know that um, when Ancestry.com says the site will stay free, yes, it will, and it's going to operate essentially the same, and he'll still run the site, but he'll just have the resources of a large genealogy data company behind him. Um, and he says on that FAQ that there are a lot of things, improvements that he's wanted to make, some kind of customer service things that he's wanted to be able to do, but just did not have the resources. And is kind of recognizing that he's not going to be around forever, and he wants to make sure that the site has a good home. So this is, is one way to, to do all that. Yeah, and it's really something we are all faced with as genealogists, isn't it? That at some point we have to think about what's the legacy, what's the afterlife of all of this mm -hmm. material we've been putting together. And I know we've had Jim here on the show, and he certainly is passionate about the website. I'm sure it's kind of exciting to him, actually, to have 
the resources to kind of move it to the next phase. He's been handling a big website with a lot of traffic for a long time, kind of uh, right. on his own there. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one thing that um, people might consider. And a lot of volunteers who've contributed so much to Find a Grave are also concerned because they didn't want to do all that work for a, you know, a subscription company. And um, Ancestry.com is planning on keeping all of their contributions free to search to um, you know, anybody who wants to search the site. Exactly. And of course, when it comes to photographs, copyright is always an issue. And I know that they talked about in the uh, the FAQ that uh, as of now, the terms of service on the copyright elements are not changing. In fact, Jim makes a really good point that it's still not okay to copy somebody else's photograph and use it as your own on your own website. So it looks Great. like they're kind of keeping things in place. Um, there was another blogger out who had written about that as well. W- what was that blog post you were mentioning to me? Right, the legal genealogist. She is a lawyer and a genealogist, so she can give legal insights to a lot of things, um, such as copyright. And she reviewed the find a grave terms of service and pretty much confirmed everything that you've just said about the terms of service. Right. And, of course, Ancestry hasn't just been sitting still with this acquisition. They've also gotten together with FamilySearch. Tell us about that joint project. That was a huge announcement at the beginning of September. FamilySearch and Ancestry.com are teaming up. They are going to put one billion um, digitized records on the FamilySearch and Ancestry.com websites. And um, Ancestry.com is dedicating $60 million to this project over the next five years, and then FamilySearch will bring the volunteers and the indexing resources. So all these records are coming from the microfilm in the FamilySearch vault, and they'll be available on FamilySearch. That's a, a concern that people have is, you know, what's in it for FamilySearch, this free right. website? Are they going to be giving all this work away? No. It'll allow Ancestry.com to build up their international content and family search will um, just make that much more progress towards the goal of digitizing all the records in the vault. Right. The vault has been a big goal of theirs. And this, I imagine, really accelerates that project. And um, I suppose there are folks who, who when they go to Ancestry, they kind of want a, a one-stop shopping kind of a thing. So I guess it makes sense that they would have uh, free content, even though it is also going to be available over at Family Search. Right. Right, and it's a way to um, attract people who will also then be exposed to the subscription, the other subscription content that's exclusive. Exactly. Well, it's great to see organizations teaming up together where there's a benefit in it for both of them and certainly a benefit for those of us who really enjoy genealogy. Always great to uh, get up to speed on what's going on in the genealogy uh, news. Thank you so much, Diane. You're welcome. Now is the time to convert your old home movies to digital before they deteriorate. But how do you do this? Well, in the October-November 2013 issue of Family Tree Magazine, author Rick Kroom provides five options and loads of information to help you get the job done. And here today with us is Rick. He's going to give us a head start on the whole uh, project. Welcome back to the show, Rick. Hi, Lisa. So like many of our listeners out there, 
I have just about every kind of film and video in my closet, you know, including the old silent eight millimeter films and the clunky old VHS tapes. And, uh, and back in the day, I remember spending a good deal of money and time getting at least some of those eight millimeters and super eights transferred to, of course, what's now obsolete, the VHS tape. So, now that we're in the digital age and uh, we're, we're faced with converting our home movies again, what are some of the options that you uh, give us in this article to kind of help us get started? Well, just like you, um, several years ago, we converted our old home movies, 8-millimeter millimeter home movies, to VHS tapes, only to find that when you go back to view them a few years later, they've really deteriorated the color um, it, um, has faded a lot, so that option just wasn't good for long-term preservation of the films, even over just a few years. So right. there are much better options today for digitizing all of your home movies, and, and these options will let you preserve those uh, videos so you can um, keep watching them much longer. Uh, if you have VHS video cassettes, you could take them to a service, but you can get good results converting them yourself with an inexpensive USB converter box. The box costs about $50. You connect the box to a VCR with one cable and to your computer with another cable. Then you just play your videos on the VCR, watch them on your computer screen, and save them as files on your computer. And you can also use a USB com com converter box with high 8 and video 8 videos. That's their another um, video format, not the big video cassettes, but they're smaller ones. And, right. But in this case, you play them back with a camcorder instead of a, a VCR. Uh, of course, they don't work with a VCR. And, so and of course, you could just plug your camcorder into your television, right? Right, right. That would be one way to do it. In this um, case, I, uh, uh, if if you just want to play them back directly on your television, but if you want to save them as, as video files, then you can use the converter box. So you um, connect your your camcorder uh, to the converter box, and then the converter box to your computer, and save those files. Uh, save those videos as files on your computer. So those are, that's um, how you can use a USB converter box with videos. But if you have 8mm film, Super 8 film, or 16mm film, you can't play them back with either a VCR or a camcorder. Uh, so you have to find another solution. And um, usually you'll get the best results by having an outside service do the conversion. And there are two main options uh, for doing this with an outside service, either real-time transfer or frame-by-frame. Frame. And with real-time transfer, the video is projected on a screen, and they use a camcorder or a video camera to take a picture of the projected image. And you could even do that yourself. Ultimately, the quality using this method real-time transfer tends to be low, and the cost usually is quite low, too. Um, but uh, for better output quality, um, you can opt for another method called frame-by-frame -frame transfer. And using that method, 
uh, they use a camcorder or video camera or a, a machine, a special machine that takes a picture of each frame in your video. So rather than just taking a movie of a, of a movie, it actually um, takes a photograph or digitizes each frame in your film. And this results in much better quality. So that's really kind of brings us to the key questions we might be asking some of these services. Are, are they doing it real time or are they doing it frame by frame? It sounds like there's there's quite a difference there, so it's important to ask. Right. That's really a key question to ask. And in many cases, if you compare different services, um, you'll find that they give you both options, either frame by frame or real time. Some of the most popular ones offer only real time. And, you know, that could be acceptable if you're not really concerned about the quality of the film. But I think for most people, you would really notice quite a difference in the quality. And by shopping around a little, you can probably find that you can, you can find a service that will do a frame-by-frame transfer, and it won't cost much of any more than it would with a real-time transfer. Uh, Terrific. Now, you mentioned that there's a couple of different film types that we may have in our storage units and our in our closets. And you mentioned 8mm, there's Super 8, there's 16mm. How can we tell what kind of film we have? Okay. If you look at the film, you'll, you'll see that 8mm film has single sprockets on one side. And on the other hand, Super 8 film has smaller sprockets on one side. And then there's also 16-millimeter film. It has sound if it has sprockets only along the top, but if it has sprockets on both the top and the bottom, then it's silent film. And you might want to do a Google search for, let's say, 8-millimeter, Super 8, and 16-millimeter film so you can see actual pictures uh, of them and that will help you figure out exactly what you have. That's a fantastic idea. <laughs> you know, because like you say, you know, if you've got it right in front of you, you could just pull up an image search. Wonderful idea. Now, we, we're moving this to digital, and that gives us so much more flexibility. I, I was thinking about when, when I converted a lot of my old movies to VHS. VHS was terrific if you wanted to pop into a VCR and show it and share it with people. But now we have so many ways that we can share our movies. We can put them on YouTube. We can put them in projects and PowerPoint presentations and on our websites. So having that raw digital version of the movie gives us all that flexibility. But then that brings up the question of format. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what kinds of formats, because I imagine when we talk to, as you said, a service, or we look at a USB converter box, we, we need to understand what's the output. <laughs> what are we going to get in the end, and, and how flexible is it to use? Sure. Um, if you use a USB converter box, um, that will save your digitized video in, in standard video file formats that give you a lot of flexibility so you can edit the, the, the movie, and you could, let's say, edit it so you could pick out a clip and post it to Facebook or YouTube. On the other hand, if you take your films to an outside service, you'll usually um, have several options to choose from for output. 
and the most common one is probably DVD, and, and that's really convenient. You can just you know, play the video on it with a DVD player and watch them on your TV, easily duplicate the DVD. On the other hand, the DVD video quality uh, won't be as good as your original 8mm, Super 8, or 16mm film. If you want to preserve all of the detail in, in that original video, you really need to save the video to a different output format, and one common option is Blu-ray. If you have your video saved to Blu-ray discs, you probably uh, won't see any difference between watching the video on Blu-ray and then watching your original home movies. The, the quality will be retained just like the original. The only problem with Blu-ray is that not many people even have Blu-ray drives, um, uh, so it, and so it's just not nearly as convenient for playback. But if you want high-quality video playback, that's a good option. For long-term preservation and for flexibility in editing your movies and, let's say, saving clips to post online, a good option is to have your converted video files saved to a, an external hard drive. And, and that way, you can easily edit the film, pick out clips to post online, and you could make copies of the hard drive to maybe store in different places just as backups. So um, an external hard drive is a good option to consider for long-term preservation and flexibility in sharing your video. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I know that's the direction I'm going is getting things into um, a digital video format, like an AVI would be a format or the MP4, which, of course, is uh, very agreeable to putting it up on YouTube. If we get it on the hard drive, then we can also put copies up in the cloud. We can do a backup uh, online storage like Carbonite, you know, having multiple ways in which we have our copies stored. So just in case something terrible happens, we still have them. These are all great ideas. I feel like you've really kind of cleared away some of the uh, the noise about this whole subject and help us get focused so we feel like we can get started preserving them for a long time to come. And of course, nowadays with digital, having all these exciting ways to share our old home movies of our families. Rick, love it. As I mentioned, this article comes from the October-November 2013 issue of Family Tree Magazine, and it is called Movie Moments. So if you've got some old movies, it's time to dust them off and check out this article. You're going to have all the info you need to get them converted and usable again. Thanks so much, Rick, for joining us here on the show. Uh, thanks, Lisa. It was fun. In this 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, I've invited Ravi Rao, founder and CEO of TribalPages.com, to tell us more about how we as genealogists can use the Tribal Pages website. Welcome to the show, Ravi. Thank you, Lisa. It's great talking to you. Well, for those who are listening who might not be familiar with Tribal Pages, tell us what the focus of the website is. What are genealogists going to find there? Lisa, our primary audience is really... Um the family historian, not a genealogist by trade, but somebody who wants to share his uh, family history. 
everybody has someone in their family who maintains their family tree, uh, like a family genealogist. And this is the person we are targeting. We're not trying to write a book or do some research. We're doing this so that people can share their family history with their family. So they're being able to put uh, the information up on charts and that kind of thing. What are the tools that you have there where people can bring this information that, they, that they've collected? Sure. When a member signs up for Tribal Pages, they get their own website for Tribal Pages, and uh, they can add uh, names, photos, or upload a JetCom. We have online tools for these things. And uh, as they add their names, we start generating the uh, necessary views, so you're talking about um, you can generate family tree charts. I even saw on the website you've got family tree maps, so it can take that data and kind of map out here's where they were born and here's where they died, yes. um, and photo trees, relationship tools. So it's kind of like a, a genealogy database or family tree. Yes. Um, we have integrated with Google Maps, so when you add um, – places of birth or death, we actually map that to directly to Google. So when you can bring up, uh, you can select a list of people you want to see, and it will actually show you where they were born or died on, on a Google map, and it zooms in and zooms out uh, as needed. That is really cool. I love that. Now, what prompted you to begin the website, and how long ago did you do that? It was way back in 1998. My wife wanted to share her family tree, and she was writing uh, web pages on her own. And uh, it seemed like a very obvious process. She was writing a web page for each name. And uh, me being a programmer, I thought uh, there must be a better way to do this. And so I wrote this program to automatically generate the web pages. Uh, it worked out very well for us, so I put it online. Uh, and it won some awards, and people started downloading and using it to generate web pages. It became quite popular. And people started asking me where they can host their web pages, and it stuck on me that we can host their, all the family trees on one site. And I started Tribal Pages uh, hosting, and I didn't know it at that time. We, in, way back in 2000, we started uh, cloud sourcing. So... Uh, wow. I remember uh, the first time uh, we celebrated having our thousandth customer, and <laughs> at, that time, at that time I knew the names of all my customers and all what they were doing with their family, and soon it grew from a thousand to ten thousand, and at that point uh, the cost of hosting was uh, starting to become ridiculously high, and mm -hmm. I decided that uh, I need to uh, finance this thing, and uh, I got. I solicited donations from uh, some of my members, and that became quite successful. Like I, I got a lot of donations, and that move and that uh, eventually evolved from a donation model to a subscription model. Along the way, I met some really passionate genealogists who were full-time on tribal pages. They weren't being paid for tribal pages, but they just had a passion for genealogy. I, I remember Dotty. Uh, she passed away, unfortunately, but she manned our uh, genealogy page, and she used to answer everybody's questions on uh, how to find their ancestors, where to look up the census records, and all the time she would actually do the research for them and post their data on, their, on the message board. So she was extremely helpful, and a gentleman by the name of Les from, uh, from England, he diligently answered everybody's technical questions on how to set up their website. And um, my colleague, Bill Winko, he was the, the mastermind and the architect behind Tribal Pages, 
fortunately for him but unfortunately for me he started his own company now his lesson picks and he's doing very well there so uh, along with the people with these people we had a great team and, and we grew from 1000 to 10000 and now we are at uh, 450000 family tree websites on tribal pages that's amazing and it happened well before even ancestry really came on yes. the scene i mean you yes. were really an early pioneer And and because your wife kind of prodded you to do it, right? <laughs> That's great. So I see on the home page that it says Family Tree Website Builder Tool. People can get started, and they can get started for free. Is that right? That is true. We don't we don't set any arbitrary limits on the number of names people can put on that site. Basically, a free site can have any number of names. We have sites with like two hundred thousand names. The only wow. time you see any any limit is when you want to generate PDF charts. We do generate stunning uh, PDF charts, which they can print at home or they can take to a print shop and blow it up really big. And these are wall charts of traditional ancestor descendant descendant views. Uh, they can frame it and put up. So they need to pay for uh, the ability to generate these uh, printable charts PDF. Mm-hmm. Also, if they need to, if they go over the limit of 50 photos, then they need to pay. And we are very reasonable. Our uh basic price starts at $2 a month and our deluxe sites are $4 a month so they're quite reasonable there oh very affordable a, a great way particularly for those getting started in genealogy i would think to to get their feet wet and to really get some information out and start generating the interest in the family it sounds wonderful and and congratulations to you for being such an early pioneer in the uh, early days of genealogy online it's wonderful to see You can visit Tribal Pages at tribalpages.com and as Ravi mentioned there's a free family tree maker that can get you started. You can add photos and I have to say I love the mapping idea, the idea that it'll take that data and stick it right into a Google map. All very cool. And if you like the um geographic mapping of Tribal Pages, you should try out even our um bloodline tracing tool what that does is you you pick uh, up to 15 names in your family tree and um, you assign an icon to each of these people and you can say that whenever any of the descendants or the relative of this person appears in the tree show this icon along with that name so as you're viewing the tree you can actually see who is a descendant of a common ancestor or who is related to your your mother or or your father It's an extremely popular tool we have on tribal pages, and uh, I just wanted to mention that. You bet. Tell us again what the name of that is, so we know where to what, where to look on the website. It's called Bloodline Tracing. Bloodline Tracing. Fabulous. Oh, very interesting. Again, thank you so much, Ravi. We appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. A successful genealogist often ends up with an embarrassment of riches, a lot of information in a lot of places. Whether you work on paper or you do everything online, getting your research organized is essential to keeping track of ancestors and making sure that you know where to put the new ones in your family tree. Well, in today's Family Tree University Crash Course segment, I've invited Lisa Alzo back to the podcast to help us get organized with tips from her course. It's called Organize Your Genealogy, Get Your Research in Order and Keep It That Way. Welcome back to the show, Lisa. Hi Lisa, thanks for having me back. 
Well, this is a great topic, and I can't think of a single person who's out there listening who doesn't think that this applies to them. So let's jump in. You know, getting organized, staying organized, it's such a big job. Are there any unhelpful habits that we may have that you can rescue us from? Boy, that's that's a big question. We could probably stay here all day just on that question. <laughs> yes. But, yes, I mean, and, and I'm just as guilty as anybody. You know, we we have the habit of of touching papers and then just you know piling them on our desk instead of taking action. And so I find that it's helpful, you know, to number one. In the course, we cover briefly a, a, a system called the the SMART goals, S-M-A-R-T, which stands for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Realistic, and Time-Bound. And so we apply that to organizing. And so, you know, s- set goals. You're, let's face it, none of us have huge blocks of time that we can spend, you know, just organizing things. And we may have papers piled up and and whatnot for, for a long time. And so, you know, you take a little chunk and then you set a goal, you know, by, you know, next, the end of this month or whatever, I'm going to have, you know, this section of my office, my bookshelf or whatever it is organized and then set measurable goals. I can do, you know, so much a day and, and set things that are achievable and realistic to your, your time frame, And, and then, you know, and set that goal and keep to it. And also try not to touch things more than once. I, I've been trying to get in a habit where I get a, a you know, I get, files, I get something come in, I do something with it. I have trays set up and I, you know, take action, shred or toss or, you know, pending. And so that then it doesn't all get into one big pile. You know, that's a great point because I think so often it's it's really not that we lack the ability to be organized. Oftentimes it's we lack the ability to make a decision. And it's really procrastination, isn't it? Exactly. That we're setting it aside. I, I think I've almost broken myself of that habit, which is, you know, if I touch it, I'm committing myself to doing something mm-hmm. with it. But um, that's a great way to go. And you mentioned something so important, which is goal setting. And we're all listening, we're all thinking, oh yeah, yeah, okay, I do that. I do goal setting. But do we really? I mean, we do it in so many areas of our life, but we don't really tangibly do it when it comes to our, off, our home office and our genealogy research and literally tangibly doing it. I think that's a fantastic idea because it kind of holds you accountable. Right. And, and, and the key is to be realistic. And, and I have this, yes. you know, I have 22 years of genealogy research in my house. <laughs> I have an entire room where I have, you know, cabinets and file box and things that, you know, I may not use all the time now, but it, it's things that I don't want to get rid of. Or if I've tried to convert over to digital, you know, but maybe there are some things that, that I want to keep. So I can't organize that entire room in one weekend. I look at my schedule, I see blocks of time, and I block out that time, and I stick to it. I set a timer, okay, an hour. I'm going to work an hour on this section. And that's, you know, and I think, and it's really worked for me because it doesn't seem overwhelming. Exactly. It's little chunks, right? Exactly. It's size chunks. Now, we have our, our physical workspace, and I know that one of my favorite things to do is I have one box that I call my lap work which is um, these are things I could easily sort, toss, make notes, do whatever. Well, 
sitting, having them on my lap, watching TV or, or talking with people or whatever I'm doing, like in the evening. So it's kind of low key work. So that's one little thing that I do is I have that pile that I can grab at seven o'clock when I go to sit down and maybe watch some TV and I can get those things done. What other things do you have that you talk about in this course that help us get the physical environment organized and kind of kept up? Well, well, some things that, you know, I, I like, I like, you know, bins that I can label and I like, you know, portable file things that for things, what I try to do is keep active things that I know that are coming in the next week or month or something like that. For example, you know, if I know I'm going on a genealogy research trip or I know I'm going to a conference, you know, the, the wheeled, uh, you know, like a hanging file thing, I can keep that in there. And then when that's over, it gets moved into the, the other storage cabinet. And so, you mm-hmm. know, for taxes and so forth, when I, when I travel or whatever for my trips. So I, I try to keep, you know, I, I'm a big fan of bins and I'm a big fan of, you know, keeping things clean off the, the desktop and making uses of, of the space underneath or, as, or off to the side. And also a label maker, a $20, $25 label maker. It, it, I think it's the best thing since sliced bread. Because <laughs> you, you start a file, you type the label, print it out, slap it on, it's organized and you can quickly find things. Oh, I love it. And and I, what I really hear you saying is there's a place for everything. You really do have to have places and drawers and designated spots to put this stuff where you know where it is. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. And um, and so in the class, are you kind of giving mm-hmm. kind of a laid out plan then of how we might structure that physical space? Yes. Uh, there's suggestions. I mean, there's no blueprints or anything, but uh, in the class, there are a lot of external resources that we, we refer people to as well. So uh, some organizational videos on YouTube, some other, you know, bigger books that go into more details on that. But we try to give people some uh, overview of of types of supplies you might want to consider uh you know things like you know making get get a good scanner if you want to go digital and we we make a few recommendations uh but we also point people to other resources where they can get more information and that's always nice because sometimes there's so many places to go you don't know where to go I, I love that you kind of give folks in the class some good tried and true resources now, we've been talking about the physical space, but of course, in the last you know decade or two, we are really in creating this whole other space, which is the digital space and the hard drives and the computers and now the cloud, all these places to keep organized. Um, what approach do you kind of take on the digital side of things? Well, again, you just have to break it down into small chunks, and and I, you know, I sometimes I like when I get a new computer because I feel like I'm starting fresh. <laughs> but we can't always go out and buy new computers, right? But uh, you know, I think it's you know taking you know looking at your 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 virtual desk space and kind of assessing what you've got, and then you know, for example, if you're doing you know a lot of heavy duty genealogy research on a daily basis, you know maybe you want to start creating surname directories and then. And, you know, subdirectories for different types of records. So, for example, I could have an ALZO folder and then I could have census records and then I could have immigration records and then I could have vital records or however I want to break it down and then make sure that I copy files that I've already saved. And you can do this very easily. You know, computers have, you know, search features so you can search for 
what you may have named it or keywords inside a folder. And once you find all those, because you may have them scattered, then you can you know, start moving them into your digital files. And when you mentioned the cloud, I also think it's extremely important to have a backup. You know, wh- you know whatever backup service you're using, whether you have a premium Dropbox account and that works for you, whether you're using something like Carbonite or Backblaze or Mosey or whatever works for you, I think it's it's important uh, to have another place. Um, I also have an external hard drive that's a, a terabyte and I have it set to auto backup and 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 I think that that's you know having backup is important too but again start in small chunks you know maybe start with your surnames and then going back and seeing what you've saved and and then start copying and and I know I you know I just did this last week I re you know reorganized look at all the things that I was just saving maybe to my desktop or maybe to a random downloads file and I've tried to get in the habit of organizing my folder so that when I do save a file, it goes right into the right folder. Oh, I love it. You know, to really put a a fine point on that, I think that uh, we don't want to wait until we're organized before we put the backup thing in place. I would put that as number one, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, you have to have backup. I mean, you know, it's going to back up no matter how you have it organized. It's going to to back up your your files, and so I really do believe that that that's that's key because I've had more computers go down, you know, where you know, <laughs> and then you've you've lost things, and and then you have to start from scratch, and there's nothing more frustrating. Yeah, better to have all the files, even if they're not quite organized yet, than to lose some of them while you're waiting to get organized. Exactly. Um, But we don't have to wait any longer because you really do kind of cover the whole spectrum of organization in this class. Again, it's called Organize Your Genealogy. Get your research in order and keep it that way. And that's with Lisa Alzo. Lisa, always great ideas. Thank you so much for coming by and uh, sharing your tips. Thanks for having me, Lisa. As we wrap up this October 2013 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, let's check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan and find out what she's got in mind for Family History Month. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. You know, I know you've um, had a couple of really cool little pullout sections from the center of the magazine, and some of those have wrapped up. You've done um, focusing on major cities and that kind of thing, and you've got a whole new series coming out uh, just in time for Family History Month. Tell us about it. Yes, um, our October-November issue, in fact, is the first installment in our new series of pullouts called The Workbook. Um, The idea behind The Workbook is exploring the various types of records that we use in genealogy. And so in each issue, we're going to have a workbook focused on a different record type. In the October-November issue, it's death records. And here's how it works. Basically, this eight-page section is going to be your sort of one-stop shop resource for everything you need to know about using, in this case, death records. And so there's a how-to article. There's some um, sample records with call-outs, and um, we even give you some sample source citations to show you how you would use that in um, citing it in your research. Um, There are fast facts. We tell you about some substitute and alternate sources that you can find that kind of information, and even a quiz so you can put into practice what you've learned from the article. 
Oh, that's a great idea. I mean, this is going to be a really cool kind of library of, of resources. Like you say, each record type. And, you know, all of us have some record type that we just haven't, you know, jumped into yet that we know we should, but maybe there's just a little intimidation there. And uh, hopefully this is just going to kind of clear the way and make it possible to feel like there's no record type that you have to shy away from. Exactly. That's sort of the idea behind all of this. Um, We actually went out to our audience when we were cooking up ideas for what would be the next in this series. And um, that was the topic that people seem to want information about the most, learning about how to use the different record types. Because really, um, there's so many different types of records that we use. Some we're more familiar with than others, obviously. So when you're using one that you haven't used a lot, it's really great to just be able to dig in, um, with have all of this information at your fingertips so that you can use it more effectively. But really, even the staple records that you might use all the time, it's great to have a refresher and have all that information there so that maybe there's some aspect of researching with it that you've missed or something that you hadn't noticed before. And these workbooks will really help you make the most of them. And in fact, the back page of each workbook is going to include a type of research worksheet related to the record covered in that issue so that it will help you take notes and keep track of the research that you're doing with that record group. Oh, that's a great idea. And and you're absolutely right. Everybody can use a refresher. You know, it's funny, we jump in and usually we're so excited and we're moving as fast as we can when we first get involved in family history. And, and we don't always realize that maybe early on in the process, we may have missed some things. This is a great way to kind of have a checklist to go through and make sure that we've we've covered all the various areas. You're going to do death records in October, November's issue. Uh, what can we look forward to in December and beyond? Absolutely. So the December issue, we've got passenger lists coming up. Oh, perfect. Yes, everyone uh, can use that. (laughs) And other upcoming topics include land patents, birth records, and U.S. censuses. So all records that I think many of our audience can make use of. And the goal is you can collect them all so that by the time the series ends, you'll have a nice little library, like you said, of all of this information about the different genealogy record groups. Wonderful. What a great way to wrap up this Family History Month episode. Um, So keep an eye out for it. It's these eight page workbook guides right in the center of the magazine ready for you to pull out and add to your collection. Sounds wonderful. Uh, We will look forward to talking to you next month. All right. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this October 2013 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and check out Rick Croom's article in the October-November 2013 issue of Family Tree Magazine. It's called Five Ways to Digitize Home Movies. It really lays out everything that you need to know to finally get that project done. You can order the paper issue or electronic file at shopfamilytree.com. Next, head on over to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast, and you will find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for everything that we covered on the show today, including the tribalpages.com website and Lisa Alzo's class on organizing your genealogy. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, 
where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast, which is also available for free through iTunes. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.